welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 1st of October with me, Ian Welsh. It's been a busy week with Innovation Forum's Business and Climate Action Conference running for three days and coming up are highlights from a wrap-up session I did with Oliver Hurry, founder of the Scope 3 Peer Group. We've also got an update from Innovation Forum's Natasha Bodnar about the future of Plastics Conference coming up in a couple of weeks. So that's to come. No news this week. That will return next time. Rapidly approaching from the 11th to the 13th of October is this year's Future of Plastics conference from Innovation Forum. To find out how the event is coming together and what to look out for, earlier this week I caught up with Natasha Bodnar, the conference director. Welcome back to the podcast, Natasha. Hi Ian, thanks for having me. How is the event shaping up? It's coming up on the 11th of October, isn't it? Yeah, 11th to the 13th of October, so just a couple of weeks away now. It's looking really great. I'm really looking forward to it. Obviously, we've run this event a couple of times in the past five years, and this event's looking just as good, if not much better. So yeah, I'm excited. Me too. Tell me about some new additions on the agenda. I think since we last spoke, definitely had a few more people come on board. Obviously, we already had a lot of great speakers already, but BSI has come on board, Rickett, Braxham, some really good speakers from Mars, as well as AB InBev, some sustainability directed packaging, some good, good new people on board as well. What are the sessions that you're particularly looking forward to? I always like the target session, mainly because I like hearing what some of the leading brands are doing and we always get some really good speakers on there. This one that's looking at how they're going about setting targets and their commitments is with Mondelez, The Body Shop, AB InBev and BSI this year. I think it'll be interesting to hear what they're doing. Always interesting to hear what businesses are targeting. Thinking of our delegates, what are you hoping that they will take away from the event? The best thing, I think, is that you get to discover some best practices from some really leading companies that are involved and hopefully can walk away with some guidance that you can use to implement at your own companies. Obviously, getting to meet and network with people in the industry as well. This is something that we really try and encourage and make sure that there's lots of times to do with our speed networking, group discussions and Q&A sessions where you'll be able to speak to people, book meetings and hopefully walk away with some good connections that you can collaborate with after the conference. Absolutely, yes. I always like the opportunities to meet people. It's not the same as meeting in person, obviously, while we're online, but there's still a chance to, to meet and connect with people from all over the world in the networking sessions, and I certainly always enjoy them. Okay, Natasha, looking forward to it. Tickets still available, listeners. Innovation Forum's Future of Plastics event from the 11th to the 13th of October. Natasha, thanks very much. Please join. See you soon. Bye. It's going to be a great three days, so I hope you can join us. Innovation Forum's flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference returns on the 30th of November to 2nd of December. 300 plus delegates will be learning from the insights of Tesco, Dole Foods, Moose Mass, the European Commission, RSPO, Mars and many more. Full details are on the Innovation Forum website. To close the Climate and Business Action event this week, I was joined by Oliver Hurry, founder of the Scope 3 Peer Group and the Sustainable Procurement Pledge. We reflected on some of the key points raised during the three days and how they relate to businesses' role in tackling the climate crisis more broadly. It really picked up for me that there is a real sense of urgency. It's hard to be optimistic given the state of the climate crisis, but everyone I've spoken to across the few days has given reasons for positivity. Why is everybody getting on with it? There's a few reasons, I think. Companies have been setting 2025 and 2030 goals for some time now, and we're getting increasingly close. So ramping up action is necessary right now. And equally, given that some really big companies across all the business sectors, Walmart, Microsoft, Nestle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they have set challenging scope three emissions targets. 
getting your own house in order is now essential if you want to do business with them. You'll become part of their scope three. They don't want you to add to their problems. Decarbonizing will, in some respects, become a license to trade. What do you think in that point? We've always talked about their urgency coming. And I think in previous decade or so, we've always hoped that urgency was there rather than actually felt it. I think in the last two years, the urgency is absolutely clear. And for all of the reasons I, I think you've highlighted, science-based targets has really obviously accelerated things and investors and all of those BlackRock and Larry Fink's letter and everything else has obviously accelerated that. The professionals feel the pressure in their jobs. Sustainability professionals over the last 10, 15 years have been knocking on the boardroom door, pleading to be let in to try and engage the business about the importance of sustainability and their job and their profession and their role in that corner of the office that they've been plonked, you know, that sort of thing. But I think that's changed quite dramatically. A lot of businesses I've been working with have been saying now their board has set targets, the door's wide open and they're dragging the sustainability team in saying, where's your plan? Come on, where's your plan? We're ready to go. We need to get started on this. Our investors want this. And so I think the sort of shift in this has made that there's a professional urgency in people who are under pressure to produce plans, targets, goals, actions, presentations back to the board who need to present to the investors about their progress, as well as the external pressures. I think we're seeing genuinely people needing to get stuff done. In terms of target setting, I totally agree that the Science-Based Targets Initiative has really been game-changing, I think as it's setting out the framework of how everybody has to work together towards, albeit a daunting target. Interim milestone targets we heard something about on Monday. Uh, these are obviously essential. The important thing is perhaps to have line of sight to the next interim target. You might not see how you're going to get all the way to the end, but have line of sight as how you can get the next target. Something else that came up today was the point around, if you are thinking about science-based targets or have a science-based target, do you have to go beyond that, given that there are going to be laggards who won't have them at all? If you are want to be the really progressive business, should you be setting your targets beyond science-based targets? Supply incentive schemes is something that came up on Monday, and having really clever ones can be really compelling. We heard from Dutch lighting business Signify how they have a point-based system for their suppliers based on their engagement on decarbonizing. And the more points you have, the more business you get. Do you have any other supplier engagement models you've seen that really work like that? That's quite a simple one, but it's compelling. Yeah, it's really good. And actually, Signify used to be Philips, if I remember rightly. And they've led the way on this sort of supplier engagement revolution, I think, actually, we're seeing in the last uh, few years. So one of the key things that they've done is they've actually rewarding their suppliers for revealing problems. Traditionally, obviously, supplier engagement is about tell us if you'll do everything okay so we can give you a big tick and we can be comfortable that everything's all right. But don't tell us any problems because if you do, you'll be in trouble and we'll have to send people around and we may not work with you ever again. We all know that that doesn't drive improvement. Sending questionnaires and auditing people into the ground so they move the fire extinguisher around and things like that, it doesn't really work. It never has, never will. I think that's true for emissions and it's true for human rights and everything else. We're starting to see a movement really towards capability building suppliers, engagement with suppliers. And I think the rewarding of suppliers for revealing problems is an interesting concept. And again, worth looking at the work of Philips Lighting and probably now Signify. As I said, Walmart making great progress, although they are a big beast naturally, and they're engaging their supply chain, the supply chain has to listen. But they're actually really engaging their suppliers with their knowledge of what they can do, what their benchmarks of their performance looks like, and what that can mean for others. Technology solutions that claim to collect data from supply chains slightly better than the next platform collects data from the supply chains. I think we're seeing really good examples of technologies scaling up capability building so that suppliers 
actually get support and knowledge about what emissions reductions to make and what good looks like so that they can then make those changes and report the savings through in data. And there's plenty of platforms like Manufacture 2030 and CECA increasingly looking to build upon their scoring to create more value for suppliers. I think we're seeing a revolution there in terms of how suppliers engage. And I was chairing a supplier engagement day for a big chemicals company the other day. And normally what happens on supplier engagement days is brand owner talks at the suppliers who sit there and listen and have to absorb all this information about emissions. And nothing really, of course, changes. But this chemicals company had Procter & Gamble in the room talking to that chemical suppliers about why it was important to give them data to pass on to Procter & Gamble, looked at it from a value chain perspective. I thought that was really good. And then you had all the buyers from this chemical company in breakout rooms working together to solve problems on supply chain emissions data with the suppliers. I remember diving in and you had buyers and suppliers sort of saying, how are we going to do this? How do we get this data? How are you going to help us? How can we do this? That's the sort of conversations we need with suppliers rather than just, as I said, more questionnaires and more preaching. It's interesting how people have lost their sensitivity around data to a greater or lesser extent. The commercial sensitivity side of it has become less of an issue because everyone's realising, well, we have to be sharing this data if we're going to achieve all the sorts of goals that are necessary, particularly if the ultimate Walmart or Microsoft is insisting, if you don't deal with this, then you're not going to be part of our supply chain. You will lose that right to be part of that supply chain. So I think that's really interesting. Peer collaboration, I think, is interesting as well and going to be essential going forward. A little bit like you were just saying about the, in, the, in the chemical sector, and I was fascinated to hear about Colgate having delivered and developed a fully recyclable toothpaste tube and immediately shared the IP with the rest of the sector. That is great. I mean, that's the right thing to do. It's great that they would happen to share that with their peers. But I guess the key point also is that if they hadn't done that, then the recycling model that they were trying to get towards wouldn't work. You're only going to have one toothpaste tube in the recycling stream. And if you've got different toothpaste tubes cross-contaminating everything else, it's not going to work. So I thought that was a really good example. How are you seeing peer-to-peer collaboration moving in your business sectors? There is this movement to really say, okay, here are the areas we can compete on, on sustainability. You know, and if you're making electric trucks like Scania are, then obviously that's an area for you to compete. We compete on making the best electric trucks. We do not compete on the challenges of getting the raw materials out the ground and the dangers of that and the human rights and everything else. There's a collaboration where it's obvious and we should stop being nonsense about it. That's where that needs to happen. Collaboration in Scope 3, there's a phenomenal initiative in the World Business Council Sustainable Development running at the moment, the Carbon Transparency Partnership, I think it is, which is essentially getting everyone together who collects data and putting data together for Scope 3 emissions, knocking their heads together and saying, right, you're going to align on questions, you're going to get together and we're going to actually come up with a common standard for doing this because otherwise we're all going to go off in completely different directions. So the harmonisation of questionnaires and questions on this is absolutely critical. There's some really good examples of collaboration and I think almost every industry collaboration in chemicals, together for sustainability, pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical supply chain initiative and beyond, has a scope three workstream. And that scope three workstream is working hard to actually say, okay, how are we going to quantify this? How are we going to talk to suppliers? How are we going to get the emissions factors? It is incredibly complex supply chain emissions. And if unless everyone works together in industries to actually get some sort of approach to this, we're going to move ridiculously slowly. So there's lots happening on emissions. There will be lots of collaborations to actually work out how to do it. And then there'll be competition to see who can decarbonize the faster. What sort of legislation do you think works? Perennial attack conferences is always a way. What is the role of legislation? What's the legislation that works? What are you seeing the sort of things that really can nudge things forward? 
We've had a few goes at this in the UK, haven't we? With various different legislations looking to encourage, I think is probably the best, weakest way we can put it, companies to report their emissions. Again, I still think whilst, of course, coming out of COP less than a few weeks now, I think hopefully we'll see some stuff with some real teeth and companies and the Biden administration and things like that will actually really put some good things in place. The recent announcement by the Biden administration on solar and the commitment to get to 45% energy from solar when it's like 4% now shows that there's absolutely drive and commitment to do that. I mean, there's plenty of public money, there's plenty of private money out there and policy really could unlock that. It'd be really interesting to see what's going to happen on mandatory supply chain emissions reporting. That's inevitable, but it's a real challenge at the moment when, frankly, it's still a very difficult thing to do and, and get your head around. But it will be interesting to see what the North Americans do, what the Europeans do, and see who blinks first. An interesting example is that in the UK and in, in Europe, there is legislation around you won't be able to buy a new car with an internal combustion engine from 2030. That's the rule down the line. But how are we encouraging people to start thinking about it now? There are examples in the UK where if you're a company fleet on a personal level, if you have a diesel car as a company car, you're taxed heavily. If you switch to an electric car, the tax virtually goes away. Obviously, that's not going to be like that forever, but that's a really good way of nudging personal behaviour and encouraging fleet buyers to change their behaviours and electrify their fleets. That's an example of the small, low-level legislative change that really can make a difference. One thing that's going to change as well, I mean, we had an excellent session yesterday on the bond to carbon markets, which has an enormous role clearly to play in supporting decarbonisation of the global economy. There are a number of different approaches to that, and there are devils in some of the detail. But my main takeaway was that all the way approaches to removing and reducing carbon do need to work. And the value recognised that local communities incentivised for the level of scaling that's necessary. So how do you see the bond to carbon markets evolving? Again, I'm going back about 15, 16 years now when carbon offsetting was starting to explode before it kind of fell off a cliff because everyone realised that it was not quite as robust as they thought. I think it's fascinating, particularly in a supply chain context. The challenge with carbon offsetting always in the past was this feeling of additionality. Is it going to be relevant to our business? Where we get to now, where to achieve some of the more demanding scope challenges, we literally can't do net zero without offsetting. But the role of insetting and then really looking at how where you can actually apply projects that really have an integral role in your value chain and a connection, I think are going to be absolutely key. In the scope three peer group that I run and run for two years, we crowdsourced 100 problems with scope three for businesses over the last 12 months. A good proportion of them were, what on earth do we do with net zero for scope three? And how, what is going to be the role of offsetting and insetting? I think that was a big bucket of problems that companies wanted to tackle. It's definitely out there, needs consideration, and there's a long way to go on that. Yeah, I certainly think that the role of insetting and value chain nature-based solutions is going to be big. And there's good guidance yeah. coming out soon. The SBTI's guidance on net zero, stay tuned for that. Again, you have to think about all the ways of realising the value of reducing and removing emissions. It's certainly going to have to be the way that, that goes. Ollie, thanks very much indeed. It's been great. Thanks very much for your time over the past few days. Don't forget to sign up for the Plastics Conference coming up in the second week of October. And do go to the Innovation Forum website for more information on that and for the usual analysis and interviews. Look out in particular for the video and audio recordings from our latest webinar. We were live from the Kasigao Corridor Red Plus project in Kenya and heard from local project managers and community leaders how the project works to protect the forests and biodiversity and benefit the local communities. It's all fascinating stuff. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh and until next time, goodbye.